Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures for the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my new book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at voltagecontrol.com magical-meetings-quick-guide. Today, I'm with Trisha Ratliff at SAIC, where she's the product owner of the Dojo and their Innovation Factory. She's also the author of the book, Innovation as a Collaborative Game. Welcome to the show, Tricia. Hi, Doug. Thanks for having me. Ah, It's so good to have you here. So let's get started with a question that I always start with, which is, how did you get your start in this work? How does one become the product owner of a dojo in the innovation factory? You know, it's it's one of those jobs that I would normally say it sounds better than it is, but it's actually a great job. <laughs> so in some ways I lucked into it or I see it as like a confluence of uh, different things that have happened over my career and, and naturally came together. I, I do believe you end up where you, if you let it happen, you end up where you really need to be. So uh, just as a kind of a quick history, I started my first business when I was starting college in order to pay for college. So I had a naturally entrepreneurial way of working. And starting a dojo inside of SAIC, or restarting it, I should say, is a very much an entrepreneurial or entrepreneurial activity. And another thing is that uh, we have evolved into an innovation dojo, which is more of a facilitated offering. We have to be agnostic about our approach and really focus on Whatever using whatever modern methods it takes to to deliver and solve problems and and help teams become the very best that they can be. So a lot of those those skills or those mindsets I've picked up over my entire career. So uh, in a way, I found myself here as a result of working in an innovation lab when I was in college, and then going out to Silicon Valley where we helped startups launch, and then later. As an agile coach, we launched a, um, a learning institute in which one of the classes that we taught was facilitator excellence. So now, years later, we're coming to the dojo when we needed to virtualize the dojo because of the pandemic, those facilitation skills were necessary and, and we leveraged them to, to reinvent the work that we do. So that's how, I guess that's how you end up as the, the product owner of a dojo is you just have a lot of different experience. And as we were listening to our customers, we had to adjust and change and, and, and leverage what we had. And that's just happened to be what was in the toolbox. Yeah, amazing. And so maybe a more recent question, and then I'm going to drill back a little bit deeper. But specifically, you mentioned the shift around the pandemic and mm-hmm. was the pandemic the thing that started the transition from 
more of a, a DevOps type of dojo to the innovation dojo? Or were those things just happening kind of regardless of each other? And I'm just kind of curious if you think it was the impetus or maybe accelerated it. It's more like it gave us a different place to land. Mm. Maybe that's a more accurate way to put it, that there were a lot of different factors in place. So the the original dojo was envisioned, the original SISC dojo was envisioned like a lot of dojos today as an agile dojo or a DevOps dojo. And there's literally a textbook that for that, that Joel Tosi and um, his friend, the other author, his name has slipped my mind at the moment, but there's an actual textbook. And we leveraged that and the experience of other dojos that the, the prior team before my arrival visited. And uh, the challenge there was that that particular format, which works well at, at many companies, it wasn't what the, the teams at SAIC needed. The format wasn't what they were looking for. So once we recognized that they weren't responding to that, we basically had a quiet period where we were just working effectively. And that was around the beginning of the year. And then we had we had run a couple dojos during the pandemic. Maybe there were three of them, if I can if I'm counting right. And we I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to answer this question, like to give you without giving you unnecessary detail, right? <laughs> so I joined the dojo after the pandemic had started. And so I can only tell you about it from the perspective of when I came in. And so was the transition already starting to morph from the classic Agile DevOps dojo at that point? Or do you think your arrival kind of started to spur some of those changes? Rather than trying to dissect that, I would say it's probably more productive to share. I'll share some things and we'll kind of see where it goes. So so prior to coming to SASC, one of the reasons that the team reach out to me is that I was an agile coach and was running some virtual coaching sessions in the winter of 2019. So when the pandemic happened, a friend of mine knew that I was scratching my head, figuring out how do we virtualize something that for 20 years we've insisted has to be done in person. And it felt like the dojo already had the same challenge Mm. because dojo was designed as a place that people go to. So I came in mid to late summer, and around that winter, we were we had finally had tools available where we could truly virtualize some of the work that we were doing. So that turning point happened right around January, February, which is a natural time for companies to rethink, what are we investing in? And right around that time, we had just leaned into virtual facilitation using a tool that was FedRAMP approved because we're a federal uh, integrator. So we were using this tool and we were really starting to virtually facilitate the types of sessions that we ran in Dojo and we were getting good at those. And that's when people started asking, hey, if we can't use this whole six-week immersive program that's all about Agile and DevOps, but we can use this one session that you run where you bring all the stakeholders together and you have challenging conversations or you create psychological safety or the sessions in which you, you know, you you have a major decision making with the group or you get feedback from a user or customers. Can we just take that part? Well, we knew from experience that if you just start to do one thing, 
all roads tend to lead back to using all these different practices that, that work in modern product delivery, which include methods from agile, DevOps, design thinking, lean startup. So because of that, we just sort of trusted. We said, yeah, let's start doing that. Let's start doing the thing that our users and customers are requesting. And, and I'll say that as, as I was emerging at that point as the product owner, it was possibly because of that entrepreneurial background that I had as a kid. I tried to start a business as a window washer and got my first two window washing gigs and it turned out that people didn't really need me because I wasn't a very good window washer. They didn't really need me to do that. So I asked, well, what do you need that I can do? So in a way, many years later, that's, you know, that's what entrepreneurs do is they, they say, okay, you know, if there's a block with this thing that we have been offering or maybe the format of it isn't working in this modern situation, with the pandemic and everybody's virtual, let's look at what people are asking for and what does work. And we're going to lean into that and, and we're going to discover. So that's the, that's a much clearer answer. Is that helpful? Yeah, it is. It's fascinating to think about like the confluence of a few different things, right? You know, it's like yeah. kind of reevaluating the value that the group's been providing as well as, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, how the pandemic's been impacting the organization. So the types of requests that are coming in, as well as, you know, maybe curiosity that's developing from within the team as far as yeah. where the team and the group can go. So Right. It's hard to say if that would have, like you said, like, was that accelerant? Possibly. Yeah. Or maybe it was a totally different opportunity. Maybe both should be happening. So I'm just trusting that in the end, the, the, right, the right solutions will emerge because we're approaching this in the right way, what I believe is truly the right way. And so rolling the clock way back, it mm -hmm. sounds like you got started early on in an innovation lab, doing innovation lab work. And so let's just be curious, like when you reflect back to that time, how have things changed? Mm -hmm. Like when you think about the way that things were done back then versus now, I mean, there's the obvious yeah. virtual stuff, but fundamentally, yeah. like what, what are the, some of the shifts that you've seen as far as, you know, the way people are showing up or just anything? You know, some things are the same, and but a lot has changed. So at the time, I didn't even think of myself as working in an innovation lab, even though there were multiple innovation labs and all the teams worked in them. The way I perceived it back then is that we had a lot of freedom and that you were given a principle or a value, a problem to solve, and that it was the team's or your individual responsibility to really sincerely think about that problem and challenge yourself to problem to solve it in creative ways to reach out to people to not be defensive so so some of those things will always be true with innovation that it takes multiple people it takes someone to care and and go deep and uh, and be curious and they need some level of creative freedom to explore experiment to put out something that's imperfect and keep trying to get feedback as they go. All, all those things were true even back then. The, the difference today, in my opinion, is that we have a lot of help now from writers and thinkers, and there's a lot of, a stronger flow, I think, of fluid information about how to approach innovation or creative teams, cooperation or collaboration, innovation itself. There's entrepreneurship even. So 
now that some of that is sort of being codified, we have a shared language. And that shared language, I think, helps us read into how to be more productive as innovators a lot faster than it used to. So I'm talking a lot. So I'm, I'm used to listening to responses to kind of see what you think. But that's where I, you know, I would say that there are a lot of things that are still going to be true. I do believe that, that innovation or creation, whether it's innovation or not, like whether you can quantify it or qualify it as innovation, cool new things are the result of unique mixes of prior art. So somebody has to care about a problem and and look at that prior art and bring together the creators who are familiar with how to create that prior art or that technology and even maybe create new things and bring together those new things. So that's where the collaborative piece comes in. So I believe that's been true since, you know, since the first potter threw his first pot on a wheel right? That, that they, they were using prior art and learning and, and changing and responding to what somebody really needs versus that, that idea that I might have. And we're sort of in that continuous flow of, of, uh, of conversation about that, that feedback loop. So I believe that's always been true. What's different today is when people like Eric Reese wrote the book Lean Startup or Steve Blank even provided that mentoring about how to really uh, lean into customer discovery, or the Agile Manifesto was signed. And when we started thinking, uh, maybe as a result of Stephen Covey, like lead with values, like now we have a language that supports what's always been true. So I believe we can do it better and faster now. And thankfully, because the world is moving faster, we need to be able to do it faster and better. Mm. You know, it's interesting, this notion of true collaboration and mm-hmm. a coordination and sharing because I feel like that's where true advancements really happen. You know, you mentioned the potter, right? Yeah. When someone develops a technique and they show it to someone else and they try <laughs> it and they say, oh, what if you tried this? And then you build on, yeah. you know, you just, that back and forth. Or they misunderstand. One of the things I learned at the mm-hmm. Innovation Lab was um, one of my bosses said to me, I love misunderstandings. They breed incredibly new opportunities. I love it. You're even hitting on something that's a powerful concept in the world of innovation, which is this notion of exaptation, right? Mm-hmm. When we take something that was intended for one purpose and we use it for another. It's yeah. like some of the best inventions. You know, the microwave oven was one that I think was one of the best, you know, where the, the radio tower technician was working on a tower and he had a chocolate bar in his pocket and the microwaves melted it. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I have heard of that. Mm-hmm. Wow. I completely forgot that story. There's so many. Like, if you just Google accidental innovation, there's so many good stories. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I want to come back to another thing you mentioned, which was the facilitation excellence class. Mm-hmm. And I'm really fascinated to hear what were some of the learning objectives for that class? Or what are, what are some of the oh. things that you were like, they only walked away with one thing. What was that thing? Yeah. Okay, so first, that class is significantly different than it would be today. One of my colleagues just took the voltage control facilitation design class that you all teach and came back so excited. You know, he's going to teach us all and talk to us and maybe even redesign our approach to facilitation. So I'm really proud to say that we are learning from you, which is great. But that's very much a virtual facilitation, right? So back then, the big message was neutrality. And mm. 
when I was leading that learning institute, personally, I had just come off of an experience where I had earned a certification in mediation. Mm -hmm. So that idea of being neutral and creating a space for others to not only resolve conflict, but take it even further to succeed together, that, I mean, my heart just leaps even talking about it. It's, it means so much, you know? So that, maybe I connected with it personally for that reason, but that was a big message in the class, which, which we didn't design. I, I, I can't think of her name now, but after the podcast, I'll send you the name of the person who designed the class. We just customized it, maybe 10%, but that, that message up front that your role is really here to create a space for others, that you want to be neutral but where you wouldn't be neutral is on that design, that you want to take that time up front to think through what does the group need? What do they need in terms of the physical space? Because it was all back when it was flip charts and markers and whiteboards, right? What do they need as physical space? What do they need as mental space? Who do they need to be for each other? What types of tools apply to this situation? How should you customize those tools? How do you remove your own kind of emotional challenges from the situation so that you're really creating that space for them. What do they need to learn live? Mm. What do they need to prepare in advance? So there was all of this design stuff that was taught, but I would say if there was that one takeaway that everything will fall apart, if you value design, but you don't value that role of the neutral facilitator, a great design can fall apart. So, mm. yeah, it's really fascinating this topic around the neutrality mm. because often I'll get this question, and it especially comes from the design sprint world. Because when people are learning the design sprint, quite often they are designers or maybe product people, mm. mm-hmm. and they are going to be, you know, directly responsible for building the product that's going to benefit from said design sprint. And the first question that will come out of them is, is it okay to facilitate and participate at the same time? <laughs> classic, classic question. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Should we just leave that out there because it's a lifelong argument? Or <laughs> Yeah, maybe we just let the, let people just have their, have their opinions on where they stand there. But, yeah. you know, I mean – you did mention neutrality, so I'll just I'll just say that. Like, if pe- let people yeah. ponder neutrality versus balancing two opposing roles. <laughs> yeah, you know, as, as a facilitator, I have to say, I and as a product owner, because the product owner is responsible for the result. I love being facilitated, so my natural go-to position is, I, I shouldn't be doing that. Mm-hmm. Right. So regardless, and someone once said to me, you don't get to use your gifts on yourself. So great. You know, that's even (laughs) better reason to bring somebody in or hire somebody to, to do it. And then of course we'll all learn. It's like facilitation is, feels like a gift and it's fun to anticipate any time when I'm invited to do it. But when I'm doing it for my team, I just stress so much more. (laughs) It's like, I don't know what. I don't know. It's just funny. It's just maybe yeah. just because it doesn't feel right. You know, it's like yeah. someone else should be doing this. <laughs> yeah, because I, I don't know if you experience what I do, but I, I often catch myself halfway through a little monologue where I think, uh oh, what my voice is different than the team members. If there's an implied 
hierarchy or a um, kind of a power dynamic or something? Am I shutting something down by speaking right now? So, it, you know, so adding on to that, trying to be a neutral facilitator, it's just too much. So, mm. you know, when I show up, at least in my role with my own team, I'm asking myself, am I in a product owner mindset right now? Am I in the role of somebody who has prior experience and wants to share it? And and if I can not be in the facilitator role, then obviously, then I can be in one of those roles much better. Do, is that what you feel sometimes? Yeah, I think that's the issue, right? If you're in the facilitation mindset, then you really don't want to be pushing an agenda or making decisions. You're just kind of right. supporting the team. Right. And if I have a desired outcome that I'm pushing to because I'm a member and I'm impacted by these decisions, <laughs> I'm probably not going to be a very great facilitator. It's going to be really hard to balance that. Yeah. And you know, the, the trick is if it's if it's an everyday meeting, we often have to, right? And it's yeah. just something that we have to think about balancing yeah. anytime where there's budget or opportunity. And one of the things I'll, I'll coach folks on, you know, that attend our trainings and, and are curious about this work is to, you know, to locate someone else in your organization yeah. that might also be curious or might be on this journey. And can you support each other? You know, maybe yeah. you facilitate their session, they facilitate yours, and it's just inviting another person to your meeting with profound results. Yes. Yeah, because it, the way I think of it is you can you can either own the design or you can own the content. But it's really hard to own both. So yes, mm. if you can find and that's certainly been true in our case if we can find somebody else to 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 guide. And even if it's a team member, that I'm yeah, I'm really proud of these team members. They're they're good at holding that space and letting go and just trusting that the, the rest of the team, the rest of the organization, other people have enough content that that it will work out, right? And I think another thing that can work too is establishing working norms mm -hmm. and operating agreements and just being clear about those and having some intention yeah. before starting any session. So those behaviors, those, I would say, norms that we want to be are spoken, acknowledged, and encouraged so that way, you know, even if things are getting off track, maybe other yeah. mem members of the team will step up and say, hey, wait a second. Like, this isn't what we said we were going to do. Yeah, we can come back to those. And I, I love when a facilitator puts those out and then asks the group. You know, they put, they put a few out to get started, and then they ask the group what should be here. And, mm. and then through during the session, you realize, wait a minute, <laughs> I misunderstood what the first one was or maybe one's missing, then then you get the sense that the group is really owning them and that the facilitator has done a good job creating a space where they, the, the participants are really owning their approach, whether it's norms or values or it could be, it could be norms, values, ground rules, all, all those things. Absolutely. And I want to bring us back to the dojo really quickly. And, you know, I was thinking about how you were explaining in the pre-show, mm -hmm. you know, there's this six-week immersion Mm -hmm. Right, that was high commitment that people had to make, and they were kind of more curious about, you know, is there a way to get a taste for this work to understand it? Yeah, is there a way to just walk away with a little piece of it? And you know, I think you were even saying there all roads lead back to all the work, right? So, yeah. however they find it, it's a good thing, right? They don't have to necessarily get it all at once. 
it's more like respect, I should say, mm. is that people intuitively know where they need to begin or what their biggest problem is. So it's not that we're trying to take them to these other solutions. It's more that we respect and trust that they say their biggest problem is maybe communication between some major stakeholders. And well, of course, you start having communications between major stakeholders and then you bring in a few users or people who are receiving value from whatever you're delivering. Naturally, a lot of new opportunities are going to emerge that need to be facilitated. And really, our job is to show up with a full toolkit so that we are not only available to do that in a, you know, do it quickly, do it soon, but even help other people or train other people to do it themselves, right? So that's one of the reasons we show up in this facilitator stance versus a coaching and training stance is I think it's out of respect for the people who are making the request that they know more about their situation and they know more about their immediate problems than we do. So if we trust that and we respect that, then instead of us bringing, seeing a, everything as a nail and bringing a hammer, we're more like, hey, let's start with what, what your request is, and then mm. the other opportunities emerge, which is why we need to be so diverse and we need to constantly be training each other because it's, it's just impossible for somebody to come into the team with like everything covered. You know, we, we're just on this continuous learning journey and even learning from our customers when they make new requests. Yeah, it kind of comes back to that point you made around the importance of being an agnostic. So I was kind of curious yeah. to get more thoughts on that. So on the one hand, there are certain things that are popular right now. So we do have teams and organizations, leaders, executives who, who come and they say, we have a digital transformation going on. Can you teach us Agile? And I, something that I learned as an Agile coach, I've been an Agile coach since the early 2000s, is there were times when we succeeded with Agile shifts and other times when those Agile shifts weren't successful. So around 2014, I think it was, I looked back over my experiences and I asked myself in like a brutally honest, almost painful way, when were those shifts successful and when were they not? And I, I often joke that what emerged for me was I noticed this pattern of there were certain cases where we got what I called triple happy face Agile, right? Where there were the user, the investor, the team, they're all happy. And then you have a product owner who's happy. So I asked, what was common in those cases? And in those cases, there was a common thread that there was an agreement up front between those key players to operate in a particular way and that we would remove barriers for each other and that there was a whole set of things that we would agree to try up front. We wouldn't just kind of do baby steps, but we would just go ahead and, and make that leap and be brave, you know, to try a lot. And when we got that agreement up front, we were more likely to, we were actually, I should say, that was 100% of the success cases was we got that that mm. uh, engagement, I should say, up front and really went for it. And when we didn't get that, I reflected back on myself and it was a little bit of a painful realization. When we didn't go for that, it was because somebody like me, myself, I hadn't tried. I was afraid. I was afraid to ask or push. You know, I, I was maybe intimidated or somebody told me not to, right? So I, I didn't want to uh, violate something there, right? So then as... Between today and back in that, you know, 2014, 2016 timeframe when I really was paying attention to this pattern, I personally realized, you know, it wasn't 
it wasn't so much triple happy face agile. It was triple happy face. Mm. Multiple people are getting results. And when I looked at the agreements that people made, they weren't necessarily just agile agreements. They were agreements around what each of those people groups or that key, those key player groups needed. And that, that is how, you know, that's how we've come to this, this uh, place where we need to be agnostic, that it wasn't necessarily about our agile agreements. It was about we were going to use approaches that we agreed to, and they were well-worn, well-established, proven approaches. But before we could agree to them, whatever approach we were going to use that seemed reasonable, well, we were all just really agreeing to try them. So there was an openness to, hey, if this doesn't work, then we're going to shift, we're going to try something else. So that means that whoever is bringing that pr approach to the group needs to be agnostic and open, truly open. Is mm. that is that kind of helpful to understand why we're, you know, we found ourselves in this place where we need to be agnostic because some some people ask for agile and then we show up and say, "Well, tell us what the problem is that you're trying to solve." And others will ask for more of a design thinking and uh, customer uh, discovery or voice of the customer or maybe ideation session. And regardless of what they ask for, we take a step back and we say, well, tell us about the problems, tell us about the context, tell us who's involved, tell us what they care about, why they care about it. And when we have that discussion, sometimes the thing that we need to do is something we haven't done yet. That's, that's us being truly agnostic. I think there's a lot of humility in that too. And what you speak to is this idea of being at a point where all the stakeholders from the beginning mm -hmm. have a lot of alignment. There's a shared understanding. Yeah. And that's really hard to be certain of if we're just using jargon. Right. You know, if, if I <laughs> yeah. say, we need an agile transformation, <laughs> and Susan goes, yeah, agile transformation, that's exactly what we need. And then Brenda says, oh, yeah, agile transformation all the way. And then Barbara says, yes, let's <laughs> do it. And then we what did we just room. agree to? <laughs> yeah, it's like, do we even know what we're talking about? Like, right, probably right. not. <laughs> right, yeah, and, and I, I find that when you really get people talking about their hopes and their fears, if you can create the psychological safety for that, you quickly get down to really practical things. Like, mm -hmm. I, you know, I was given a $5 million budget for this, but if I can't prove that something's working by the time we've spent, you know, 500000 then I might not get that whole 4 or $5 million budget. So... Here's what I'm thinking initially, you know, so just letting a product owner be vulnerable or that investor be vulnerable and, and putting that problem out there for the people who are a creator team to own it, that I find gets really practical really fast. And then if you do have somebody who knows a method, like this seems like we should use a design sprint or we're going to use design thinking and we're going to do some paper prototypes or, you know, whatever approach you're going to use, if it seems to apply, you're going to now apply it knowing what's most important to people. And you can already start to assess where that approach may fail for those needs or it might succeed for those needs. So yeah, I, I agree. It does, it comes from a place of humility and a little bit of that like daredevil, you know, 
you have to be willing to to try anyway and 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 be the one. It, it gives people a lot of confidence when I or somebody else says, you know what, let's try it for X weeks or X iterations or whatever you're asking for agreement for. If it doesn't work out, then I I'll you know I'll be the one that says, hey, it was my idea. You know, let's try something else. Or, you know, this approach didn't work. We'll use a different approach. And or we'll customize. You know, maybe we'll make a small adjustment. Maybe we'll make a big adjustment. Often, I've found if everyone's really aligned on the purpose yes. and what we're trying to do, the method, the approach, all that kind of doesn't matter. Yep. If they're bought in and they're really feeling ownership around where this needs to go, yeah. the approach can morph on the fly. And no one's offended by the select of, selection of the approach because yeah. – all the problems that typically uh, come out of this stuff is typically because we're not aligned. It's funny you say that because we run we run a stakeholder alignment session, and I would say it's our most popular session. 100%. <laughs> surprise, <And> so, surprise, <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't know. I wanted to bring up pushback with you, mm-hmm. and I think this is a great way to frame it because I was thinking about when you were telling that story about you know this realizing that you know the, the, this three smiles outcome that's right a th- triple happy face <laughs> yeah i feel like there's a scenario a version of not getting there that's caused by mm. someone pushing back or not being completely in alignment or agreement with this mindset or this way of thinking but somehow just going along with it and being like okay yeah. if that's what you think they basically got sold and this is where this word buy-in comes up a lot, right? We got to get them bought in. And so they got sold on this idea yeah. and they're like, all right, well, I'll give you, I'll give you six months to prove that it works, right? This is the classic CEO being like, I don't, I don't buy this design thinking stuff, but if you can do it in six months and I, I feel like that's destined for failure out of the gate because we didn't spend the time getting alignment and understanding and instead, we're up against this like naysayer who's yeah. like out to disprove it the whole way. You know? Yeah. So two mentors told me early in my career to listen to the active objectors because they're thinking and they're saying what the active resistors or passive resistors, that's right, what the passive resistors are thinking. And the people who just go along because they're good sports and what do I have to lose? Well, they they could accidentally go along with the wrong thing if you're not listening to those active objectors. So those active objectors, if they have a valid concern or a valid point, we should be able to address that. So I I guess I'm kind of going into solutioning, but that was some great advice that I got early on was really, you know, listen to those those objections. And and as a matter of fact, I often encourage servant leaders, if you're going through some type of what you call a transformation, a digital transformation, or an agile transformation, or some type of cultural movement, that they really listen to the impediments and actually create a lot of transparency around them, maybe admit, I'm not doing anything about this right now, but I will. And the, the reason for that is those impediments are usually connected to objections. And if you really listen to them and you, you, you dig in to removing them, you'll either find out that, uh, hopefully this wasn't true, but it is true sometimes, that some of those objections are just phantom objections or phantom impediments because somebody was uncomfortable. But at least you took them seriously, right? You treated people with respect. But on the other hand, plenty of times you discover, wow, that really was a real problem. 
that that the, the reason that people were upset and the reason that they were saying it's not going to work and the reason they were doubtful is that they knew something and they just weren't able to articulate it yet. Mm. So I'm I'm reinforcing your point that if you really if you really create that opportunity for people to bring up this is what I'm concerned about or afraid of or sometimes they don't use the words concerned about or afraid because those are emotional words and they'll say this won't work because but what they're really saying is I'm afraid that you're ignoring this blocker and that when it fails it's going to cause a lot of pain for me and you etc so for what it's worth that's uh you know that's that's some advice that I've found fruitful year over year those emotions tend to pop up in all sorts of ways right it can manifest in those very tricky to deal with moments in a facilitation that kind of come out of nowhere. It's like, why is this person giving me so much um, uh, or making my life so hard as a facilitator? <laughs> right. And it's like, oh, let me step back and go, well, why? what are they yeah. struggling with, right? This is just a manifestation of something else. Yeah. Ben Atkinson, who we have been talking to, he's a really bright guy. We connected on LinkedIn. And he recently taught the dojo to kind of learn about, I think it's called a KIA arc where people fall and there are people who are like really fall on that creative creative end where they are really open to change and trying things and they just want to be heard and then there are other people who want to be heard for a different reason they have all this practical skill and knowledge and they they're really concerned about the details and they can see things before everybody else so mm. uh, i would i would add that um, apparently there's some really good research on those people who are objecting and are pushing back that there's a, a solid reason to listen to them, right? 100%. And, yeah. and often it's novice facilitators look at that as like, how do I shut this down, right? Rather than invite right. it, you know? Right, So yeah. I want to, I mean, we're kind of running out of time, and I want to hear a little bit about what's next for the dojo. Like, where are things headed? Oh, well, okay. So first of all, we are naturally expanding. And one thing we haven't talked about that I would love to chat with people about is team building around this type of work because it is creative work and it's really important to have a, a, a diverse set of perspectives and skill sets and people who are really willing to collaborate and teach each other. So that's where we are right now. And where I perceive that we're going is I think we're really going to stretch and explore and prove out I hope, right? I hope we prove out how well it can work in a with a creative team when you focus on hiring people not only for their existing skill but also for this value system of they they naturally like to collaborate and help others succeed. They're okay with taking feedback, they invite it. They have that continuous growth mindset that they really are here in service to the goals and that they're willing to put goals in front of maybe their own their own immediate concerns, right? And that they are able to communicate and articulate what they need in order to su succeed. So there's kind of this value system that we've been using to, to hire people, that they're really passionate about the work and the mission, but moreover, are they able to really collaborate and do they want other team members and our clients to succeed more than they want to say, look good or be perfect or whatever, that they're willing to experiment and take those risks. So what's next for us is I, I'd love to be able to share what happens with that, with other people, and also hear from maybe other people who are ahead of me and already really succeeding 
in that area so so that we can continue to grow because we're we're growing based on this virtual manual facilitation but we're also looking for ways to automate what we do because you can't scale five people at a time right so some human element will always be necessary but in uh 2022 and 2023 i see us challenging how much we can automate just like you have mm. you've been you had to create your own tool in order to automate the repetition of the end of your facilitation to get your roses and thorns feedback right yeah lots more to it as well right yeah, like it's true. every yeah. there's lots of things that uh you start to notice about man why am i doing this so much <laughs> right 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 and you just like yeah. lean in and yeah. And, and trying to make it better. Yeah. So, yeah. So the, the, I guess what's next for us is those experiments around, I guess I should say, learning from those experiments about how we're building our team and the way we're working together combined with the, how, what are we going to automate? How can we automate? And will it really help us multiply the results that we feel so good about? Awesome. Well, I'd like to end with asking you to leave our listeners with a final thought. Yeah, so if I could end with a final thought, I'd really prefer to end with an invitation that if there are other people out here who hear the podcast today and they're they're passionate about fostering innovation and they really believe that creating a collaborative space and facilitating that collaborative space for other people to run experiments and bringing together the expertise and the capabilities of the people around them is what they're passionate about or they believe that they can get better results in the world and make a difference in the world, then I'd love to talk to them. I, I invite them to, to reach out because I'd like to hear what you're currently doing that's working. I'd like to hear what's not working. And I'm happy to share the same from our perspective if that learning is useful to other people. So fantastic. I love the learning mindset and I love the focus on values. So important. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Tricia. I really appreciate it and always enjoy our conversations. And um, just thanks so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com.